back for another episode of Librarians with Lattes. I'm your host, Amanda Lau, Outreach and Marketing Librarian here at the University Libraries at UAlbany. I'm joined here today by Jane Kessler, Director of Collections here at the Libraries. How are you, Jane? Great, Amanda. How are you? Not bad, not bad. It's a little warm outside, warmer than I'd like. Yeah, it, it is warm. It is too warm. <laughs> so our first question of the show always is, what are you drinking today? I bet I can guess. What I'm always drinking, Diet Coke. <laughs> Uh, I'm drinking water because the heat is a bit much, and I didn't get a chance to get Starbucks today, which is sad. That's uh, too bad. It is too bad because there's been, um, oh, this, I've decided that chai with oat milk is perfect drink. If you get ice, it tastes just like an oatmeal cookie. Oh, okay. So if you like liquid oatmeal cookies. <laughs> it does sound good. It is. It's really uh-huh. a little cinnamon and some of that sweet cold foam. It's actually really good. Probably too sweet for you. Yeah, it probably will not t- tear me away from my beloved Diet Coke, but... <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. So, uh, for today's conversation, we're just kind of talking about you here at the libraries and some of your career stuff uh, that you've gone through. So, um, do you mind starting out by telling us um, if the career of librarianship has always been something that you've wanted to do? Well, strangely enough, no. Um I was, as a kid, I was always a big reader and a library user. My, um, my mom and dad were big readers, and uh, my mother took me to the library uh, all the time. Um, she was a trustee of our local public library, so I was on first-name basis with the librarian. Uh, but it never occurred to me that it was a career option. Uh, and then I went to college. I majored in finance. I went to work at GE as a financial analyst. I earned an MBA while I worked for them. That was like, took, you know, I was there over a decade. Um, and, it, you know, it just wasn't um, terribly satisfying. So I got a book out. Uh, called Careers for Bookworms and of course the first career they covered was uh, librarianship and I don't think I read the rest of the book because I knew immediately that that was uh, a good fit for me and when I told my family and my friends that I was going back to graduate school for a master's in library science they're like oh that makes perfect sense so I, I'm kind of embarrassed that it didn't occur to me earlier, but yeah, I've never regretted it. Well, don't be embarrassed. I feel <laughs> like a lot of people, um, I, at least I remember when I was looking at like range because I originally wanted to be an English teacher. That's why I started my college journey out with probably up to my junior year. And then I dropped the education portion and didn't okay. know what I was going to do. Um, and I was like, publishing sounds good. And then I was like, maybe not. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So then I became really good friends with one of the librarians at Oneonta. And I was like, you know what? Librarianship. That sounds like a great thing. And I looked more into it. Um, but there's always this common misconception that people only get into librarianship because they like to read. Right. Too. Well, that, Right. And that we sit around all day reading books and shushing people. Which isn't true at all. Not at all. Not at all. There's a lot more that goes into librarianship. Um, And I think during the course of our interviews with different librarians on this show, we hear a lot about that, about how people get into librarianship and what librarianship means to them. 
so the last time you were on the show, you were the head of the reference department. That was during season three back in 2019 wow. before COVID. So that was wow. a, a while, ago. while ago. Yeah, yeah. So a lot has changed. And now you're director of collections. Um, so what, what ways are these positions different? And has the switch changed how you approach librarianship? Well, I, w- I, I would say the big difference is that um, in collections, we are dealing with uh, a pretty significant budget to acquire books and databases and other library resources. So we have to manage that, which is a big job. Um, But it hasn't really changed my outlook. I mean, both positions are concerned with um, supporting the research and teaching and learning needs of the university referenced by providing help using the library locating information to users and collections by actually providing the resources selecting and um, acquiring the resources that our users need what's your favorite part of your new position well you know, since we're an R1, a large um, research library, we, uh, you know, there are a lot of disciplines at the university that are taught and that uh, research is conducted in. So that is very interesting. Um, and I enjoy working with the subject librarians who all have their area of expertise and keeping up with new resources in all of the disciplines. Have you discovered any resources that you were unfamiliar with before that you oh, really have been yeah. diving into? Well, a lot in the science area, since I was not a sciencey person. Um, Same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but luckily we have, you know, a couple of science librarians who know exactly what these things are and why we need them. And I agree. Um, is there anything from being head of reference that you miss? Oh, for sure. Well, working with you. We still one thing. work together. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I inter- miss the interaction at the reference desk with students and faculty um, and seeing, you know, what kind of questions uh, that they ask. That would be the, the big thing. Oh, that's my favorite part of being in the reference yeah. department, doing what I do is interactions. It's a communications-based profession for most of the part. Most yes, of the exactly. All right, so um, you've made some new additions uh, to collections since you've been director. Uh, can you talk about some of these, like the popular reading collection, New York Times, some of the um, reasoning behind why? Right, sure, yeah. Well, um, the popular reading collection was uh, the dean's idea. She's wanted to add something like that for a long time. You know, research shows that students who engage in leisure reading do better academically. Uh, And um, so while it seems like maybe it's outside of our purview, since we collect scholarly resources, um, a lot of academic libraries provide that kind of um, collection. Uh, it, it also helps uh, students de-stress, you know. So we were able this year to take some library development funds that are provided by donors 
and um, get a collection of, I think it's about 325 books. Sounds about right. Yeah. And we, we lease them so uh, we can um, return them and get a different set, you know, as new books are published and um, according to what students have checked out and seem to like, you know, but we've tried to provide um, books in sort of every category, true crime and horror and fantasy and romance and mystery, you know. It's a pretty um, good collection. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you think so. And, you know, students can um, make, su make a suggestion, and if we can get the book through the leasing program, we'll do that, so. How popular has the collection been so far? Do we have some stats? Yeah, yeah. A couple hundred books have circulated out of the 300. So um, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of months, but. That's still pretty good for yeah, a brand new collection. Yeah. I, I think so. So. In addition to that, we have that huge acquisition of New York Times online, which I know we're really excited about. So if you talk yeah. a little bit about well, how that process was. That's something that the faculty have wanted for a long time and we've wanted for a long time. We've always had access to the New York Times through some of our um, databases, but we didn't have access to uh, the site, so sort of like a reading copy you could track down uh, an article or search for articles on a particular subject in the New York Times, but you couldn't just go to the site and read the paper. So again, through the generosity of our donors, uh, we were able to um, get a license and uh, provide uh, a site license to all our faculty, staff, and students. It doesn't include the cooking or the games, but you can pay for those yourself Some if you really want to. Yeah, like Wordle yeah. is still Wordle free. is still free, thank goodness. You yes. know, um, but yeah, and actually, this was um, the SUNY Library Services uh, negotiated an agreement with the New York Times, and so we uh, were able to take advantage of that. And uh, but it took. Oh, it had to be signed, I think, by the Attorney General of New York State, and I think it took about nine months to actually get it through. So It goes to show how big a deal some of these acquisitions are. Um, in the same vein, how is, is that typical of some other collections for acquisitions, like in terms of a timeline of getting something? Uh, Yes, um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these electronic resources have license agreements that need to be signed and we're not able to sign any of these um, on behalf of the university or the state in the libraries. So they have to go to procurement and sometimes they also have to go to the state attorney general and the controller. So, um, you know, that's not the only thing that they have going on. So sometimes we have to wait uh, quite a long time. So it was a valuable lesson for me. I had told uh, people that I hoped to have it in place for the fall semester. And the fall <laughs> semester came and went, and then most of the spring semester came and went. Um, so now I know not to um, promise anything until the ink is signed. But yeah, it's all part of learning. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I see uh, all the time, 
from our students and faculty here is not knowing why we cannot get an ebook from another library, like through interlibrary loan. And you mentioned licensing. That's a big part of that, why that can't be, right? Right, right. Most of the license agreements um, for electronic resources prohibit lending ebooks. Um, it's just the state of the publishing industry. We, we have um, the SUNY Library Services, again, uh, was able to work out a trial with ProQuest where um, we are able to uh, share ebooks amongst the SUNY campuses. So there's a trial of that right now. So it's only books that we've ebooks that we've purchased through ProQuest. Um, but apparently it's going quite well and it would be great if other vendors and publishers would adopt something similar. That's a hundred percent awesome thing and I hope it does go through because yeah. that's a huge ask from a lot of people about ebooks and why can't we just share and I really do think people don't realize just all the red tape Right, behind. exactly, exactly. All well, that. and they think if we have an ebook that we can lend it out multiple times simultaneously, which is also not true. We usually buy one copy or one license for an ebook unless we know that um, it's required reading, and then you can buy usually uh, a three book license, so it allows three users to read a copy at the same time, um, or you can often buy an unlimited license, but that is usually uh, double the price. And, you know, we just can't afford to buy them all like that. Yeah. And I know that some um, sometimes they'll treat uh, the licensing and how many people can have it and how many times it's checked out based on the life, the, the life of a regular physical copy, which is kind of absurd to yeah, think about. Yeah, it, it is. It is strange. There, There is another promising trend coming which is um, called controlled digital lending which I'm sure you've heard of so and this got a lot of attention during the pandemic because we couldn't you know the libraries were closed we couldn't lend our physical books yeah. uh, and people needed electronic copies so in controlled digital lending um, you can digitize a book and lend out the digital copy, um, but you can only lend as many copies, digital copies, as you have print copies. So if you own two print copies, you can digitize it and loan out two copies, but not three. You have to wait till somebody returns one before you loan it again. There's some question about the legality of that. Yeah. It's not settled law yet. So we have not um, done that. We'd also have to have the infrastructure and the staff to digitize the books. But it, it is promising in that it would make our print collection available to everyone Access, without yeah. coming into the libraries. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is a huge thing that we can do. And um, the, I mean, COVID brought about a lot of things that we just had to to think about um, exactly. going forward and and 
we don't know what's going to be happening in the future with any other kind of pandemic level things. So monkeypox is a thing now. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So, you know, it's the things that we should continue thinking about. But I know that there, um, when when that started happening during COVID, I think the Authors Guild like took up arms about this issue. They did not like the idea. Right. Um, and I think there was a lawsuit or something in New York State about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, there's always the question of the publisher's rights and the copyright holders rights and you know libraries rights and fair use and it's it's a bit of a balancing act but that would be a real win for libraries if yeah if yeah. we could do that yeah that e i believe um the topic of ebooks just came up in general and it was um something the governor talked about in new york state because there was a whole um I don't want to say the wrong thing on this, but go look it up. There are probably news articles on the ebooks mm -hmm. uh, debate in New York, um, and I know that's something that's probably a conversation across the nation and globally, because uh, it's not just us here that are dealing with these issues. Right. So. Right. And we have a lot of part-time students. We have a lot of distance students. You know, it's better e than shipping the books. Exactly. It's a lot. It's a lot cheaper than yeah. shipping them. Yeah. How much money we'd probably? Well, I guess. What the cost difference would be between between um, physical items through ILL and electronic items? Because there's still something you have to pay for them. Right. Well, so. I mean, if right, if we have if we already have it electronically, it's probably pennies to to lend it. If we have to digitize our our print copy, then there's some staff time involved in. It is time consuming. Yeah. Speaking of money, it's always the big question in collections and with all, uh, you know, libraries in general, do we have the money to buy this to support um, everything that we have going on uh, and all the disciplines? So how is that task, uh, under undergoing that kind of task and that enormous amount of pressure <laughs> to make sure that we have the money to collect for everything that we need to? That's probably the hardest part of the job. You know, we have, um, we have a lot of disciplines. They all have journals that they need and other resources and um, trying to balance that all. And if we have to make cuts like we did this past year, um, making them um, in as uh, fair a manner as possible. You know, we, we collect a lot of usage statistics, so we pay a lot of attention to whether things are getting used and um, you know what are core resources in in the different disciplines so we put a lot of thought into it when we have to uh, stop getting something but it's never a it's never a pleasant task so we just don't arbitrarily just cut things just for fun there's a reason <laughs> oh, yeah you know, we're librarians. We we want to collect things. We want to buy and build a scholarly record. So um, it's uh, yeah. it's it's not in our nature to discontinue. Well, the largest struggle is always with those databases and the electronic stuff because it tends subscriptions are expensive. Terribly expensive, thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, we get some help from. SUNY, they provi provide a core set of 
databases um, under the SUNY Connect program, and that helps us out enormal, enormously. Um, for instance, uh, EBSCO Academic Search Complete, which is a, a multidisciplinary full-text database with lots of journals, uh, that's included in SUNY Connect, and we would definitely buy that uh, if we didn't have it through SUNY Connect, so that does help. Yeah, there are definitely certain um, interdisciplinary databases and um, some others that are just favored by students. I know uh, JSTOR, JSTOR is a huge one. I love them. Shout out to JSTOR. Is, they know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And of course, a lot of the EBSCO Gale um, products are just yes. huge. Yes. Very, very useful. Yeah. Um, the state also has a program called Novel New York where they provide um, some core databases and electronic resources to school, but those are a little bit more geared towards um, elementary and middle and high school, yeah. although there are some things that that are useful. Yeah, I remember seeing them in like high school yes. uh, databases that yes. are offered. Um, now, in terms of, of course, we have databases that we you know, have for all our current students and faculty. What about stuff that we provide to alumni? That's always a question. Uh, that is asked, like, what are the limits to alumni databases? What's set up for them? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, most of the licenses we have for electronic resources limit access to uh, currently enrolled students and faculty and staff. Uh, alumni can come into the building and get a guest pass for a computer and use the databases here, but they they are not able to access them remotely. Um, that said, there are a few that, um, uh, for instance, there's a few from EBSCO that they've made available at no extra charge to alumni. And those are sort of um, smaller versions of some of the other databases. And those are listed on the library website and I think there's some information on uh, how to access them. You have to be registered with the Alumni Association. Yes, we to, do not have any of the password. Right, right, about. yeah. So so there are options if you're out there and you're graduated. And you're like, exactly. Or you just come visit. We like yeah. seeing people. Yeah, that's your best option. Yes. Um, so we've talked a lot about electronic resources. Now, what about print materials? I know that's the big thing in the future. We hear a lot of people talking about the death of print materials in libraries. Do you foresee that as director of collections ever happening? Well, not unless the prices come down on electronic resources and, and e-books. Um, and, you know, people still enjoy reading uh, a print book. No, I do. Yeah, and they're still cheaper for the most part. So... Um, we get more bang for our buck and you know when we're trying to cover a lot of disciplines so I, I, I don't foresee it happening anytime soon I mean of course during the pandemic the ebooks were a godsend and but even yeah. then we still wanted people with access to the physical collection where we had to rope off the stack yes <laughs> so it's I don't think the book is dead yet no and though I keep on seeing it um as we see uh, some universities that are um, kind of
kind of doing away with their libraries or they're like putting their libraries elsewhere. I know that's a big story of Texas A&M um, right now. Well, they lost tenure. They did, yeah. which is super scary um, for you know awesome academic libraries. Um, but some of the suggestions that I've seen were like, oh, we'll just make everything digital. And I'm just like, I, this, I found Oh, you need a pretty large budget for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for folks that don't know how operations work at libraries, it's not as simple as, you know, just saying, let's put everything online, uh, unless you're set up for that, like Empire State Colleges, which they are solely online, their libraries. Right, right. But there'll always be a place for us, I think. And I'm glad to hear you say that, too, because <laughs> it's, it's something that just keeps on coming up. And I just don't think it's it's something that. Well, the other thing that keeps coming up is, you know, parents ask why why do we need a library? Isn't everything available online for free? So, again, kind of money, money Another misconception. Yeah. yeah, that's part of what you're paying for tuition is um, access to all these materials that we get and the subscriptions that we maintain. And I don't think um, students necessarily think about that when they come right. in. Right. Well, I think people are shocked to hear that... Um, scholarly journals are as expensive as they are. I mean, we have some, they range in price from a few hundred dollars a year to 10, 15, $20,000 a year for one journal. And it's hard, um, I think, to make the switch completely over to like open access resources because there's still such an onus placed on publishing in these um, pay for paywalled uh, journals so it's, until that changes in academia I don't think that we're going to be able to make any big changes here at libraries yeah I mean o open access has a lot of promise but there's a lot of things that need to be figured out and it's you know there's been some progress but it's just taking a long time and I think that's the uh things move slowly in academia mm -hmm. is the problem and it's a lot of minds you have to change but wherever there's money people are going to be remiss to <laughs> you know relinquish that um, I, another thing that I think people don't realize um, is that a lot of times as authors because you know we publish as librarians um, we don't see money or anything from publishing with, you know. Right, right. You know, well, authors, and none of the authors of these journals see money. Right. So. That's that's the whole idea behind open access. We have researchers here. They write up their research. They want to publish it to further knowledge, yeah. and journals then. Um, agree to publish. They don't pay the authors. A lot of times um, faculty serve as editors on a volunteer basis for these journals and then the, the journal publishers sell that content back to us at a very steep price. So it's a bit of an exploitative model. Um, but um, yeah. And then if, if you're in a journal that's behind a paywall and you want to make your stuff open access, there's usually like a thousand right, dollars right. fee. Right. Um, and yeah. And we're we're not able to help uh, faculty with article processing.
costs at this point. The, the regulations that require uh, federally funded research to be available, open access have helped and um, hopefully we'll continue to make progress. And we make sure that we clearly delineate what is open access when you're searching on our catalog too. Yes, yes, that is a nice feature of the catalog. Is there a process that we go through for searching out more open access materials to include in our catalog? Well, we include the um, Directory of Open Access Journals, so they do a lot of that legwork for the scholarly communicate community, excuse me. And um, there's also um, a similar one for books, for scholarly monographs. So um, that's really the, uh, the main way. Yeah, it's definitely something. That's why we encourage all students to be aware of these things. Um, you know, and same with our faculty. If you could publish open access, yeah. You know, do it. Do it. Yeah. Helps us too. Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> right. we don't worry about necessarily, you know, making sure, you know, because that's something we also want to do. If we know that you're publishing in a journal, we also want to have access, you know, for that. And if we don't subscribe to that journal, then, then we don't have access right. to that faculty's publications. So. Right. I mean, hopefully it would be discoverable in the catalog and we could get copies through interlibrary loan, but it would be best just to have access. Speaking of which, it is the summer, and we are open if the folks didn't know. You need That's right. To us. That's right. It we gets are. a lonely here during the summer. And I think all of the summer session classes are online. <laughs> yes. And the winter session ones, too, right? Yeah, we miss people around in the summer. Come in and say hello, definitely. Um, use our resources. Say hello to Jane. She's around. <laughs> Take out a book to read yeah, on the beach. The, yeah, we have lots of that now. So, you know. Definitely come in and, and borrow from the popular reading collection. Make more suggestions if there's new summer reading material that you're aware of that's coming out. Um, or just something that you've been interested in reading. I know that I use interlibrary loan a lot. For, like, or I used to anyway for a lot of the more leisure reading materials, graphic novels especially. Though we have a collection here, it's very varied and uh, what we have. Um, so I know I've put in suggestions for some stuff. And we try to get them. We do. We try. We try. So definitely um, go ahead and do that if you haven't already. So to kind of wrap things up, uh, we always ask folks um, what they've been reading lately, whether for pleasure or for research or both. Uh, so what have you been into lately, Jane? Right now I'm reading um, Chasing History by Carl Bernstein of uh, Woodward and Bernstein, Watergate fame. It's a memoir about his early years in the newspaper journalism business. It's really interesting. And I just finished a book called Index, A History of the by Dennis Duncan. And that was, that was fascinating. I also, something I could recommend for a summer Beach read is something called The Violin Conspiracy. It was by uh, a debut author, Brendan Slocum is his name, and it's about uh, a Stradivarius violin and a, a young classical musician. A mystery? A mystery, yes, very good. Uh, any of these something we have or easily? Uh, we, we could get them. I'm not sure if we have them. 
we can get them. Definitely. Yeah. Or you can enter in a library loan. So yeah, they're all new, so. Yeah, so it would take usually a while for us to get some yeah. new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I'm going to recommend a new book that actually I have. Um, I'm always reading fantasy and yes. that kind of thing, you know. So Holly Black came out with a new book. She's the author of uh, Cruel Prince, like all these, you know, fairy-related kind of materials. And I actually have a book with me right here. Uh, it's called The Book of Night. Uh, it's her first foray into um, adult fantasy fiction. She usually writes young adult. But I brought it because I, I, I thought this would be interesting for folks that like libraries and um, that kind of that kind of book. So I'll kind of read a little bit of what it's about. Um, Charlie Hall has never found a lock she couldn't pick, a book she couldn't steal, or a bad decision she wouldn't make. She spent half her life working for glomists, who are magicians who manipulate shadows to peer into locked rooms, strangle people in their beds, or worst. Glomists guard their secrets greedily, creating an underground economy of grimoires, and to rob their fellow magicians, they need Charlie Hall. So this is basically centering around her trying to steal a book called The Book of Night um, from these shadow magicians, and it's all about how um, you can manipulate your shadow to make it into something else. But if you manipulate it too much, you can lose your shadow. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very interesting. And like I said, Holly Black is known for fairy things, so this is very different from what she usually does. Um, and it's been, and it's relatively, it's like under 300 pages. It's only like... 250-ish. Um, very interesting so far. So if you're Sounds fantasy, fun. check it out. Um, Holly Black would probably appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a wrap for season four of Librarians of Lati. Season four. I can't believe that. That's Wow. Yeah, we've been at this for Good a job, while. Amanda. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Um, so we'll be back in September for season five. We're just taking a month long break. Um, so check back with us in September for the premiere of season five. Thank you, Jane, again, for joining us and being here for the last episode of the season. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Um, and, um, yeah, so to all our librarians with Lattes listeners, thank you for sticking with us. As always, I'm Amanda Lau. I'll catch you next time. And if you haven't been able to get to the libraries lately, what are you waiting for? We hope to see you.